Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is June 18th, 2009, and my guest is Justin Fox, columnist and blogger for Time Magazine and author of The Myth of the Rational Market, A History of Risk-Reward and Delusion on Wall Street. Justin, welcome to Econ Talk. Thank you for having me. Your book is a history of risk, reward, and delusion on Wall Street, but it's also an ambitious intellectual history, a history of how economists and finance scholars have tried to use the tools of economics and statistics to understand finance and the stock market. And one of the highlights of that intellectual history is the claim that markets are efficient or rational. Uh, there are different versions of that claim. What, what have they been, and uh, where do we stand with respect to those? Well, in the taxonomy that was developed at the University of Chicago starting in the mid-60s, they talked about weak form efficiency, uh, semi-strong efficiency, and strong efficiency. And, and those were all about the kind of information you, you were using to try to beat the market. And it started with weak form, which was just, it was just the claim that if you looked at past movements of the stock market or of a particular stock's price, that that wouldn't tell you anything helpful about the future movements. Semi-strong was any publicly available information about a company, what you read in the Wall Street Journal or saw on CNBC, not that they had CNBC back then, but you get the idea, that that wouldn't be enough to enable you to outperform the market. And then the third was strong form, which was any information wouldn't enable you to beat the market, that, that markets were able to suss out even private information on on companies and reflect that in the price. And and so that was sort of the starting point, but then there was this other issue of okay, if that's true, if even with all this information you can't beat the market, then that must mean that all information that matters is already embedded in the price of stocks. And then there was sort of this next step that was never really clearly defined, but sort of this assumption that, well, if that were true, then the, mark, the prices prevailing in a financial market, and especially the United States stock market, which is this huge, pretty transparent liquid market, were they fully reflected all available information, and to, to some extent, they were right or rational. Well, I think what's interesting about that, and your book really made me think about it a lot, is that, as you point out, some of the intellectual underpinning for this idea goes back to Adam Smith. Some, a lot of it goes back to Friedrich Hayek's 1945 article, The Use of Knowledge in Society, which right. we talk about a lot on this program. Uh, the argument there is that prices are signals. They're important signals. And that logic was then imported into financial markets with the implication that you couldn't outguess the market. The market had more knowledge than any individual – uh, that the market prices that resulted from individual transactions incorporated the knowledge that, that we're talking about. And that, unfortunately, I think in the case of financial markets, two ideas get confused, and I, I want you to clarify them because you just talked about them. One is, as an individual investor, what should I think about 
when someone comes to me and says, you know, I think GM's a great buy right now at 40 cents. And I think GM's really worth $10. And the Hayekian insight, which is part of this efficient rational market insight in the financial market, says, you know, you're probably that price, that knowledge is probably already embedded in the price. Right. And you're probably not going to make a lot of money buying individual stocks and that index mutual funds are the best long-term strategy for individual investors. And I think despite the challenges, which we'll talk about in a minute from uh, academic research to these efficient market theories, that lesson still is pretty intact. Do you agree with that? I I agree, although I I will say you can come at the argument um, in a way that doesn't even – I mean, I think Hayek's insight is really important, and it's basically true that there isn't – I mean, if – you have some idea about why a company is worth more. You have to have a really good argument for why that's not already in the price, why, that, why the rest of the market hasn't figured that out yet. Especially as an outside observer. Right. And, and I, company, I do think that there, there are some indications that sometimes maybe, in some ways, maybe less about individual companies but about the market as a whole. It, I, just the, the success of value investing, and we can get to that later, does seem to indicate that there, there are exceptions. I mean, you can, if, if you possess uh, certain <laughs> psychological traits that allow you to stick with it, you can actually do a little bit better than the market. But my sense is the, the, there's this other argument for index funds, which is simply that, on the whole, investors are going to, their performance will equal the market minus costs. And so you're basically starting, the more you're paying for whatever mode of investing you're using, that's, that's this catch, thing you have to catch up from, no matter what you're doing. And with index funds, you're keeping those costs as low as possible. And so the greatest strength of index funds may simply be that you're keeping the costs down and you have this nicely diversified portfolio. It, it doesn't mean that it might not be possible to put together a better portfolio. It's just that unless you're a really brilliant investor, you have to pay somebody else to do that. In the process of paying them, in most cases, you will wipe out any advantage you've gained. Yeah, and, and I, we had John Bogle on for a podcast. We'll put a link up to that, of course, and that's the centerpiece of his innovation right. uh, and contribution to the world. And there's lots of low-lying fruit that investors can take advantage of by trying to minimize costs, not trading constantly, not trying to time the market, having a diverse portfolio, et cetera, which, is, of course, if properly done, can be less costly. Well, and Bogle has, in recent years, done all sorts of wonderful research that basically the single, the one reliable predictor of future mutual fund performance is cost. The lower the cost, the better the performance. But the more interesting claim, I think, intellectually, uh, that's practical advice, which we don't dabble much here on econ talk, right. and it, it's good to, good to know, and I think it's something we've learned. But the more interesting intellectual question is is the is the strongest form, which is that the overall market level, of the market, it's not just relative prices of stocks that matter, which is really Hayek's insight is about relative prices right. and and price signals steering resources towards things that are suddenly less scarce or suddenly more valuable. In the stock market, we don't just care about relative prices. We care about the overall price of the market, overall value of the market, especially if you're an index investor. And a, for a long time, economists argued that, though, that the overall level – it wasn't just relative prices that were accurate, but the overall level was, was a result of fundamentals – 
um, both at the individual stock level and at the aggregate level, the market as a whole. And that has been challenged due to recent events going back right. 20, 20 years or so. So talk about what, what came along that made that harder to, to argue. Well, I mean, first of all, what made it harder to argue is that it had never really been demonstrated with anything like the sort of empirical evidence that the that the fact that the market was hard to outperform or that information was quickly reflected in prices. There was all sorts of empirical studies done that showed that. There never really was any, and I don't know quite how you do it, but there never was any successful investigation that I know of that showed that the, the overall level was, was always right in any way. And, and to a certain extent, what happened was, I think this, there's this classic line in one of the Miller Modigliani papers. Merton Miller and Franco Modigliani wrote these two famous papers, one in, I think, 1958, the other in early 60s, that kind of defined the new practice of academic finance. And in one of them, they're talking about how, yeah, we know bubbles happen and crashes have happened, but for the purposes of what we're doing here, which I think it was trying to figure out uh, some corporate financial models of of, of the cost of capital and how corporations should think about their capital structure and whether they pay dividends. They said, for the purposes of this investigation, it's fine. We think it's fine to just assume that market prices are rational. They weren't saying that they believed they were all the time. They just thought, okay, to do this, let's assume that. And I think the discipline of finance, especially in economics to a lesser extent, then went in this direction of, was this really useful assumption, useful starting point? But it, it led people to ignore some pretty interesting and important um, aspects of how financial markets in particular really do behave. Well, and as you point out very nicely, the most of the time, it works really well. Right. Uh, and it's a very, very powerful organizing assumption, and it might even be true, but every once in a while it's not true. And it's those rare events – and we've talked with Nassim Taleb on this show about it, and it's obviously in the news uh, as we think about the financial crisis. The rare events, the crash of 87, the current mess we're in, uh, although they're rare, their impact is not is not small. Although they don't happen very often, when they do happen, it's pretty um, pretty unpleasant. And so it's an interesting challenge, I think, for analytical finance that the tools that have been developed are really good at at the everyday, most of the time, uh, activities. They're not so good at the at the other activities. Right. Well, and one, one thing I've, I've heard, both when I was working on the book and, and since the book has come out from a few more orthodox finance types, is, well, all we ever met with the efficient market hypothesis is that, on average, prices are right. And, and we never really said over what period you take the average. Yeah. But it, it means a lot. I mean, if you're saying that, on average, over any one-month period, you know, prices will fluctuate around the correct price. That's a vastly different thing than saying, on average, over a 30-year period, um, prices will fluctuate around the correct price. It's and like it's, saying, on average, you know, a, a small child who's two feet high can can swim safely as long as the average uh, depth of the water is, is less than two feet. And, of course, right. that's how you drown. Yeah. The average isn't what you care about. You care exactly. about the deepest part. And, and I, I think this is just something that economics is always going to have these kind of – there'll be a crisis, and so everyone's focused on not on the average but on the extreme outcomes, and and that, and that's like the focus of the discipline for a while. And then things are calm for a while, and everybody starts 
focusing on the average again. And I, I think you can see that pretty dramatically just in the course of academic economics over the past uh, 60-odd years. Well, you give a really nice survey of that, of that intellectual adventure uh, as economists and others have financial scholars have tried to apply those tools of economics and statistics to to the financial sector. It raises a question you don't answer explicitly in the book, and I want to ask you here. Uh, I've become increasingly skeptical of the role of sophisticated statistical models to help us understand the world of economics. Finance, in some sense, appears to be an exception to that skepticism. You talk about the event study, how well they've done. You raise the point that non-event studies can't be done, and this is part of this issue of how we deal with the overall market as a whole. How do we ever know that it's really rational? Right. But I want to challenge you and ask, have we made progress? We have a lot of fancy – we have the fanciest tools of all time, right? We, we were, we've gone from people running uh, calculations on primitive computers, really just calculators of, of a primitive kind. And now we have these incredibly sophisticated models. Do you think we've advanced? What have we learned and what have we not learned? It's funny because coming to this as an outsider, I am not an economist. I didn't, I mean, I took 101 and 102 and then some higher level course that I did really poorly in and then got out of it in undergraduate. And so I come to this as an outsider and I generally like economists. I like talking to economists. I, I, I think they've played a, well, on average, a useful <laughs> role in our society. There you go. Um, and so, you know, there is this whole, I mean, Nassim Taleb always loves to just say these over-the-top things about how we should be better off with no economists, and Myron Scholl should go home and spend his time playing Sudoku and not ever try to do anything related to financial markets again. And I, I just, first of all, I just feel like that's impolite, um, but the second of, because that's just not the way I operate, and the second of all, I, I just don't know, I don't. I'm not deeply knowledgeable enough about the models and, and, and what exactly people do with them. I, I think at their best, they force people, and this was, I mean, Paul Samuelson's great argument for using mathematics and economics back in the, in the 40s, I guess it was initially in his dissertation, and then it was published, um, now I'm spacing out on the title of, title of the book. But, 19, but his, the Foundations of Economic Analysis, Exactly, and, and his argument is that it, it's just a lot of economic arguments are, by their very nature, logical and mathematical arguments, and if you insist on always doing them in words, you're just muddying things. You can have a much clearer discussion if you just put these things in models. I, I think the difficulty is, as with all things, there are diminishing returns. And I think up to a point, yes, that was helpful. It clarified the discipline and allowed economists, even ones with pretty different political views, to agree on some basic things and, and have some common ground. And, and I think that helped the discipline, definitely helped it gain in influence and, and respectability, and I think helped it do some good things. But obviously, as you keep moving in that direction and you watch what's happened in economics, I think it gets problematic. And as you see in this crisis now, I think it's been fascinating that the people who actually have to make decisions have backtracked 50 years and are using these really simple Keynesian and other models trying to explain what's going on, whereas most of the academic economics People at top universities are still very much, most of their work is everything's got to have micro foundations. It's got to start from individual behavior. And basically none of those people have 
well, I don't know of any of them who've made any real major contributions to explaining what's going on and what we should do next. Yeah, no, I think we're in a, a time both in financial economics and macroeconomics generally where we may have a paradigm shift of some kind that can't be anticipated. But I, I want to go back to your point about diminishing returns. I, what fascinated me about your overview and survey of our advances and sometimes steps backward in, in understanding financial markets is how often tractability became uh, the centerpiece because, well, you know, say the normal distribution is what we're really good at and anything other than that is, quote, messy. And it raises the question, you know, Taleb's one of the people who pushes it the most, but I think it's a very important question, which is uh, it's probably, isn't it better to be agnostic and say, I don't know, uh, something Ed Lemer also pushed on this program a few weeks ago. Isn't it better to say, I don't know, instead of my model tells me that the science is this, that, and the other? Yeah, I mean, I'm a big I don't know sayer, so I'm I'm all in favor of that. I, I think it is, it, it's funny, some audiences like that, and some really, really want answers, and I and I think that's part of what has gone on, is People want answers from economists, and those who actually give answers ended up having more influence than the ones who said, I don't know. I actually okay. it, I gave a talk. I mean, I, every once in a while I'll go out and do talks to various groups, sometimes advertisers for the magazine. And I talked to some group of clients of some brokerage in Detroit a couple years ago, and afterwards this guy came up to me and said, I kept count, and you said, I don't know, 33 times. <laughs> And, and he thought this was a criticism, but he was act, he had actually talked about going to some session led by Jeremy Siegel at Wharton, and you know he had been very sure of him. Heard it fewer times there, yeah. Badge yeah. of honor or badge of shame? I, badge of honor, perhaps. Now, uh, there's probably a way to to give the same um, general impression without saying the actual phrase that often, but I, <laughs> I think it's a very important thing. I do too. Or at least, maybe not. I don't know, but. We don't have any perfect answer here. Here's a couple of answers. Here's yeah. here's here's some thoughts. Yeah, this is an area where precision is not uh, is not uh, to be recommended. I, I heard a really bad joke the other day, which is, "How do you know macroeconomists have a sense of humor?" Because, answer: Because they use decimal points, right? <laughs> and that's a joke only a macroeconomist or a somebody writing about finance would think is funny. I mean, it's, right. uh, you know, it's a statement about, it amused me too, but it, it's, uh, it's a statement about precision that isn't deserved. Um, let's turn to something a little more specific from the book. I like to talk for a little bit about Warren Buffett. Uh, he comes up in the book as an example of maybe an actually skilled coin flipper. You know, a lot of people look at successful individual investors and they say, well, you know, at any point in time, they're going to be people who, because of survivor bias, uh, are going to look like they're successful and wise and brilliant and geniuses when, in fact, they've just been lucky for a long string and there's really nothing underlying their success. Some people think Warren Buffett is the exception who maybe actually knows something. What, what are your thoughts? Tell what, Why do you portray him that way in the book and what do you think the case is? Well, one of the things that really struck me with Buffett is that he has organized his operation at Berkshire Hathaway in the order to give him the best possible chance of success. And a lot of the research in the 60s, most notably Michael Jensen's uh, PhD dissertation at Chicago, which was about mutual fund performance, 
was all, it, it was measuring mutual funds. And the thing about it with mutual funds is they're actually a pretty bad setup for beating the market because the managers are paid for gathering assets, not for performance. And obviously, if you perform well, you can gather more assets, but it's, there's not a perfect correlation there by any means. And especially once you reach a certain size, having more assets makes it harder to beat the market. Therefore, that's difficult. And people can pull their money in or pull money out or put money in at any time. That's part of the mutual fund setup. And and so when you think about it, it's actually a really bad um, framework for someone who actually has knowledge and is able to beat the market. What Buffett has instead is this situation where it's all up to him what size his portfolio is. And pretty much all his cash that he uses to invest with comes not from the people who buy shares in Berkshire Hathaway, but just from the cash flow of enterprises at Berkshire Hathaway. So one of the things that struck me was really interesting is here is somebody who has looked at all of the agency problems and other difficulties involved in running a professional money management operation, things that economists, after ignoring for a long time, really started paying a lot of attention to in the 1990s. And and so that that's not totally random. That aspect of it, you can't just say that's a random thing. You look at how he has it designed, and it's a better setup. So I think he's really interesting in that way, and the, and the other way is just that, I mean, his general mode of investing has been value investing, trying to discern what the fundamental value of a company is and then deciding whether it's worth buying or not. And that has, it, it's not only he that that has worked well for, and a lot of quantitative studies, again, especially in the 1990s, have shown that even a, a sort of much less nuanced and sophisticated strategy of simply buying stocks with low price-to-book value or price-to-earnings ratios would outperform a, a market index. I think it also helps him that he's really smart. Yeah, uh, I mean, people, it, you know, it's more plausible in his case. And he really pointed to a nice thing. I think the incentives he set up for himself and his customers are part of the appeal of thinking he's special. And he is special, clearly, right? He's not just a bright guy. He's evidently – I've never met him, but he's evidently an exceptionally bright guy. So that, I think, makes it more plausible that he could actually make some progress. But underlying all of these kind of claims, and it runs throughout your book, is this idea of, of arbitrage, right? It, it's this – the $20 bill on the street. You know, the joke is that if it's if it's really there, somebody would have picked it up already. Right. And there has to be a first person who picks it up. Uh, the odds it's the same person repeatedly. You know, there there can be a skill in, in finding twenty dollar bills. Um, but you know, if you believe in arbitrage, you expect there to be not very many of them that don't lay around for very long. So you have to make some kind of argument that that he is he can't be copied. That that he's got something unique. And that's a little harder to justify, I think, that claim. Right. And especially that it's relatively easy to find such a person and hire them at a good price. First one out of six billion is rare. So if, you're yeah, up, if it's but only I, him. I don't so. think, I, I guess what, I don't think it's quite, obviously, if you didn't, if there were no link between skill and reward in investing, then there's no way markets could be even close to efficient or rational. So there, there have to be some people out there succeeding for a reason, or else it, it, the whole thing is just this completely random enterprise. So I, I, I guess I've just, there's, there's this really obvious truth that professional money managers 
well, investors as a group can't beat the market. Professional money managers as a group, since they pretty much drive markets, they can't beat it either. Um, so as a group, on it's again that average. On average, it's absolutely true. And, and a lot of people who seem to be geniuses are pure, they're just taking stupid risks or it's random luck. But I still think it's, it's, there's a group that's larger than one in six billion that are actually um, getting returns commensurate with their skill or the work they've done in digging up information. Yeah, it's two. It's him and Charlie. <laughs> part, but yeah, no, it's pro- there are probably a few. Well, just the, I mean, these studies that were done in the early 70s by Fisher Black and others about the value line survey. And basically what they discovered was the value line is this service, sort of value-oriented, that would give recommendations of stocks to buy. On, and based on fundamentals. About based on fundamentals. Price earnings ratios. And if you looked at those recommendations from the you know the second they came out, they it was it was a market beating strategy. The problem was no one could act on them the second they came out. Mm-hmm. They, they'd come in the mail, and, mm-hmm. and markets would have started to move. And so there was no way for an outside person to take advantage of that and make money off it. But if someone at Value Line if had simply taken that same strategy and and made those same calls and used it in the market, that that would have been a market beating strategy. Yeah, no, they they can exist. It's a it's a um, it's of course it's possible. And information, I think one of the one of the other um, leaps of logic that wasn't quite justified from the Chicago School, which I'm a you know proud descendant. But the idea was you know, if Information moves quickly. That there's no inf- there's no arbitrage possibility, but we know it doesn't move infinitely quickly. So right. by definition, there has to be some possibility uh, of arbitrage, and it's the actors who are taking advantage of that information that that make the arbitrage uh, opportunities go away. And I, you raise a point in the book a couple times that again, I it made me think a lot about it, and I like your thoughts. Uh, a sort of paradox of this works really well unless – but once everybody knows that it, it doesn't work the same way. Right. And I, I can't remember the example you gave in the book. I think you were talking about um, – you'll have – maybe you'll remember it. But Well, I mean one example is just all of these the, – the disappearance of beta, which is this – Yeah, define – talk about what beta is and then and, and why it disappeared because it's an important – Beta is the, the – riskiness of an individual stock relative to the overall market. And it can be in different assets, but it was basically initially formulated with stocks in mind. It was formulated independently in the early 60s by Jack Trainer and um, Bill Sharp. And in the, it actually turned out to be a great predictor of what happened to the mutual fund industry in the 1960s because there was this performance obsession in the, in the um, early to mid-60s and these people, um, Jerry Thai and Ned Johnson of Fidelity, were the biggest stars of all. Were anointed these geniuses because they, their mutual funds would be up thirty, forty, fifty percent a year. And so, uh, Trainer and Mike Jensen and others took a look at what stocks they were buying, and, and basically came to the conclusion that they were the reason they were outperforming is just they had they they were loading up on high beta stocks stocks that more volatile rose, riskier. yeah they were more volatile than the overall market and so as soon as the market began to decline these guys would do even worse than the overall market and that is exactly what happened so beta performed brilliantly in the 1960s in the 
nine, early 90s, these new tests of, of beta were made, and, and it, it started failing them. And there were various different explanations that I get into in the book, but one, one that at least a, a non-economist who likes stories like me was really drawn to was that part of it was just the, the success of all these finance professors preaching beta and efficient markets that had caused people to start buying S&P 500 index funds. Yeah in a way that had um, skewed the returns of S&P 500 stock, constituent stocks upward and had sort of messed up risk-reward relationships throughout the market. Yeah, I don't remember if I asked this of Bogle, but it's it's the question that that kind of observation uh, creates, which is you know, it, if no one is buying index funds and everyone's buying individual stocks or everyone's buying managed mutual funds – you're going to do very well buying index funds. Right. But if every single investor finds it to be an attractive strategy, the whole underlying logic of it doesn't work anymore. Is that correct? Um, I guess. Because there's nobody doing the arbitrage. Right. There's nobody doing the arbitrage. And, like, I, and I think everyone, even the most diehard efficient marketeers, would have agreed with that from the very beginning. They just would have said, oh, that'll never happen. That's true. but And it, to a certain extent, it hasn't happened. But it is interesting in finance, and, and it seems to have been more dramatic on the sort of risk management innovation side, where there are these moments. The classic one is with this thing called portfolio insurance that um, – a couple of Berkeley professors came up with in the late 70s and then uh, launched in the 80s and it became a big hit. And one of the, the guy who thought it up, Hayne Leland, told me that at the very, the moment he devised this, and, and it's basically a strategy for um, selling stocks quickly as the market falls. Um, and, and he said he knew that if it, this ever became a really big, if everybody were doing this, it wouldn't work. It would be a disaster because suddenly all these people selling quickly because the market was falling would call the, cause the market to fall even more. And he said, but, you know, I, how long would it take before we became that big, big a part of the market? And then he pauses and says, oh, it took seven years. <laughs> and that, that was the 1987 crash. And I... Obviously, there are lots of different explanations for that crash, and it's sort of anecdotal to blame it on portfolio insurance, but I, the fact that Hayne Leland blames it on portfolio insurance sort of led me to tell the story that way. You know, I thought that was – you did a really nice job in the book about – talking about the 87 crash because as a uh, one-time one fan of perfect markets, um, less so now, I've gotten more influenced by the Austrian school, but as a Chicago grad, I found – I was, you know, raised to believe in perfectly rational markets, and of course, I was part. Of, I would listen to people talk. I would call it grasping at straws, trying to find fundamental things that would explain a thirty percent drop, because of course that's that had to explain it. It, it had to be that, and right. that's a useful. It's a very powerful way to organize your thinking about things. Is to is to have a dogmatic approach like that because it helps you uncover things you might not know about, and of course. In the aftermath of the 87 crash, people did find some things that they didn't notice the first time that may have had an influence and may, may have actually caused it, but maybe not. And very hard exposed to, to distinguish between those two theories. Right. You made an interesting trip to the business school at the University of Chicago you talk about in the book. I'd like you to describe it as a as – a, um, it's, it's really a – a template for some of the intellectual debates you cover in the book, which is visiting Eugene Fama on one floor and then talking to Richard Thaler on another. 
it's a cool thing about the Chicago Business School that they're both there. Right. Uh, talk about why they're what they represent and, and what they said to you that day. Well, Fama is the author of the efficient market hypothesis, and I mean one of the I I see him as this heroic figure in the book. Although I, I just got a long email from one of his students who liked the book but still thought I was too tough on on Fama because he then he authored this hypothesis and said this is how you'd test it, and he did an initial test in the early 70s, and it seemed to meet the test. And then he revisited it in the late 80s and early 90s and actually said, no, it, it failed the test, and so we need to start coming up with new explanations. And he, I just don't know of many cases in science of somebody who's famous for one thing, who then spends 15 or 20 years basically showing what was wrong with it. And, and so I find that enormously appealing with him. But the funny thing with Fama is if you come to him, and this, this whole conversation happened when I was writing an article for Fortune on, on the topic before I ever thought I was going to do a book or anything. It was that, that article that led to the book contract. And, and so Fama always felt the need talking to a, a, a layperson, and a, especially a journalist, to still kind of represent the efficient market case. And so he was actually, I mean, at one point he said, you know, of course it's not literally true. It's just a, it's just a theory. It's just a model. But he was pretty strident about defending the efficient market worldview and criticizing those who were trying to come up with psychological and other explanations for why the market works. And I, I seem to remember he had some letter on his desk that he was about to fire off an angry letter to the editor of, I forget which finance journal, for having allowed the word bubble to creep <laughs> into an article in the journal. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and he basically said, you know, if, as soon as you move away from the efficient market, all that we've built in academic finance falls apart. You can't talk about the cost of capital. You can't, I, I don't remember the whole list of things he said. So that was FOM. And then I go downstairs to Thaler, and Thaler is seeming much less feisty and sort of saying that, yeah, he brings FOM into his class once a year to talk to his students and basically tells his students that you know everything Fama says about advice for individual investors is completely right. And but he said, but there's this more interesting intellectual question of how rational is the market, how reliable is our financial markets. So on broader questions of regulation, how we organize our society, how we govern our corporations, all of that. And 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 when I told him that Fama said, you know, you take away this rational market, official, efficient market starting place, and much of finance, the elegance of finance disappears, and Taylor said, absolutely, it's, it's going to be a big mess, was, I, I think, his exact quote. And then the, the one funny little postscript is then he said, oh, I'm going to this, having lunch at this seminar where some students are presenting results of their research, and so we go into this seminar, and one of, one of the students is talking about uh, the Chinese apartment market, I think Shanghai apartment market. And he was couching all of the explanations for why things went on in these psychological terms. And actually, that's where I need to back up. Richard Thaler was very trained at University of Rochester, which was even more Chicago school than Chicago, in the 1970s. And you know, very orthodox training. His dissertation advisor went on to be chairman of the Chicago Economics Department. But he became, right around when he was getting his dissertation, he became fascinated with psychology and was sort of the first economist who became familiar with the work of Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky. And Kahneman, right around when I went to visit, Thaler and and Fama had just won the Nobel in economics, shared with 
um, with Vernon Smith. your colleague yeah. Vernon Smith. And so, so Thaler was this really interesting mix of this guy who was totally had the Orthodox training, Chicago stool training, but at the same time thought that cognitive psychology offered some interesting explanations for a lot of behaviors. So we're sitting in this seminar where the student is entirely relying on the theories of Kahneman Tversky to explain the Shanghai apartment market. And at one point, it just cracked me up. Taylor said about one time, and he says, well, maybe, maybe that's really just the result of supply and demand. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, it's really, for me, a half-full, half-empty kind of debate. Uh, you know, people aren't fully rational, and some aren't rational at all. Uh, and to assume they are is a very can be a very productive way to look at the world. To assume that markets are rational, whatever that means, is 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 more plausible. Uh, and I think it's a very productive way to look at the world. But things can go wrong. Uh, individuals can make mistakes, and it'd be foolish to argue that in reality those things never happen. I think one of the challenges and we're seeing this right now in financial markets is the um, is the temptation to just say, well, it's all, you know, it's all random. It's a wrong, bad choice of words. It's all uh, flawed because of people's emotional role, the, the role of bubbles or whatever. Right. And the thing, example that comes to mind is that people are trying to uh, figure out how to reconstruct the securitization market for either credit cards or mortgages. And it seems to me that the market, if left alone, wouldn't solve that problem because it probably shouldn't get solved. The market would say, uh, individuals in the market, it would lead people to say, uh, this is a dangerous, complex thing. We didn't fully understand it before. I'm going to stay away from it for a while. Right. And uh, we, we've, in the name of um, trying to improve on the imperfection of markets, we forget those uh, – the market will sometimes make those corrections on their own – on its own and we're certainly not letting that happen these days. No, that's true. And and there's actually this wonderful little book um, by George Cooper, an English money manager, called the the Origins of Financial Crises. And it, I mean, the one thing about it, it's he's just criticizing what he calls efficient market theory throughout. And he's kind of his definition of it is a lot broader than I think Eugene Fama ever meant. But it he makes this wonderful point. That um, you can't really you can't combine that belief with a belief that it's the job of a central bank or the government to stop financial crises without creating the situation where you just keep creating more financial crises. Yeah, because mm. if if the idea is you're supposed to be hands off while markets are going up and then very hands on when they're going down. That seems kind of asymmetrical and, and flawed. So you can either, I, I would think the Austrian and generally sort of libertarian approach would be, you know, let let there be, let the cycles happen, and then you'll have fewer of these big, big busts. And then the, the flip side, which I think is probably more politically likely, is, well, let's, we need to do a little bit more to, con- we need to do more to constrain bubbles. They're still going to happen, but let's find ways to maybe... Um, I think restricting leverage seems the most prominent, promising, although financial um, people are very good at, at gaming any <laughs> yeah, sort they, of leverage rules. Yeah, no, that's one of the problems. Um, 
But but you raise what for me is a really is is the deepest uh, intellectual question about is a non financial economist looking at this field as you are from the outside. You know there there is um, this claim that there's systemic risk that there are these the way I think about it is there's these feedback loops that that instead of enhancing stability are destabilizing. Right. And the fundamental question for me is whether individual players in the market. And then the market as a whole would figure out ways to reduce that instability. But for some reason, we've decided to never let it – to give it a chance. Why don't we talk for a little bit about what happened with long-term capital management, which is a beautiful um, example of hubris uh, run amok. Talk about why what, – what motivated them to be successful. Why were they successful for a while and then why did they fail and how the systemic issue arose – to me, it's sort of a precursor to the mess we're in now. Well, they were an arbitrage operation, basically. They would find tiny discrepancies in pricing between like, the new treasury bills that had just been auctioned and the, the previous years, and buy one and sell the other short and make money off it. And lots of people do that. But I think they were sort of pioneers and were very efficient about it. So for a while, they were able to make tons of money. But as more and more people got into the same trades that they were getting into over the course of the 90s, the only way they could keep delivering the kind of returns that they they and their investors expected was to just keep levering up to, to borrow more and more money. Let me just – I just want to explain that to the listeners because you have a really nice example in the book of that. As your margins are shrinking, the return suddenly of this productive, profitable trade isn't worth it anymore. But if you borrow enough, it, the return on what you're risking actually can be can be decent. Right? Yeah. But, I mean, the flip side of that is, obviously, the more you borrow, the, the greater a risk you're taking. And I mean, it's funny when you talk to, like, Myron Scholes always makes the argument that, well, it wasn't, it wasn't our... It wasn't that we... Well, actually, I guess he does admit that it was sort of, they didn't fully understand how, um, they understood their individual risk. They didn't understand the market risk. If something bad happened, how it could suddenly conspire to drive everything in the wrong direction um, for, for a continued period of time. But basically, what it is, is all the theories of financial economics, starting with Harry Markowitz and his portfolio theory in the early 50s, are all based on the idea that you're a price taker that the prices are just out there being set by the market, and whatever you do won't drive the price. And that seems to be the... That was a flaw with portfolio insurance in 87, and it was a flaw again at long-term capital, that they just didn't understand the sequence of events that could happen if they ran into trouble. So explain what happened with long-term capital. And, and the idea here is that is that if you're the only guy doing this, it, it would have probably been okay. But since everyone else is doing it, trying to do it at the same time, it, it spirals in this unstable way. What happened? Well, I mean, and I'm I'm not the world's foremost. I, I, I ended up deciding on this that, you know, I was just going to read the, the two books that have been written yeah. on it and not try to do a whole lot of independent research. But yeah. clearly what happened was the, the Russian debt default. And it wasn't what... And that just suddenly caused spreads between risky assets and assets perceived as safe suddenly balloon all over all over the world. And basically, long-term capital's business, for the most part, was assuming that any abnormal spreads would go away. 
And so this happened in the, it started, I think they started having trouble in the summer of 98, and then it really hit big when the actual Russian default came in the, I guess, very end of the summer. And I think their initial calculations were, okay, This they actually had foreseen that something like this could happen, and they figured, okay, we'll you know lose 30% for that year, but we still have a lot of capital. We'll be able to go forward from there. What they didn't really get is that since they survived on borrowed money and since there were tons of other funds at investment banks and in other hedge funds making the exact same trade, that it didn't end there. It didn't end with that initial loss because of the Russian debt default. It became suddenly all their lenders were calling their loans and the prices kept dropping even further because everybody was in this situation. And it just ended up in this downward spiral that was finally only stopped by William McDonough, then the president of the New York Fed, basically calling all of long-term's lenders into a room um, down there on Wall Street and saying, fix this. And that's well, the reason I found that story so um, relevant is it's really the Bear Stearns story, right? Right. It's really the Lehman Brothers story. It's the same. It's the Merrill Lynch. It's the AIG story. It's all of a sudden this strategy that you thought you had a handle on and as you say, they, they weren't idiots. They weren't myopic. They didn't say, oh, this is going to keep going up. They understood that it could go down. What they didn't anticipate was that if it went down and everybody who had made that bet tried to unravel it at the same time, the price consequence would be extremely unpleasant. And that would in turn reverberate through the uh, capital requirements uh, and and the willingness of people to lend money to you. And because you were highly leveraged, all of a sudden you're you're dead. And this is, the, to me, the central puzzle for the non-expert uh, in what's going on right now, which is, okay, you bought a, bad, a bunch of bad subprime mortgage-backed securities, so you had a bad quarter because they didn't do very well. But no, you didn't have a bad quarter. You, you go out of business. And the part I don't understand, like your thoughts, is that well, why wouldn't you – you're not stupid. You know that could happen. You, you, know, you say, and everybody says – well, you don't realize that when everybody's doing it. But after a while, surely you realize that everyone's going to be trying to unravel these positions at once. Surely you realize that you're not the only customer of AIG and that they might not be a going concern <laughs> to back your uh, bad bet. Why didn't people anticipate that? What do you think? I, I think, I mean, partly because they're getting paid well not to. Yeah. Um, and this is another really interesting book that's come out recently, Jillian Tett's uh, Fool's Gold. It's basically the story of J.P. Morgan Chase, which was really one of the few big places that didn't get caught in this whole vortex. And it's really, it's it's interesting because they were actually innovators in some of these um, derivative products that enabled the growth of the mortgage market. But they actually, their people very early on said, we don't actually know how to we don't understand how you can make the risk-reward um, relationship work on mortgages, and so we're staying out of it. And so every six months, uh, and then Jamie Dimon came on. If, if Jamie Dimon hadn't come on board, as she tells in this story, they probably would have finally succumbed to the fact that everybody else in the market was making all this money on these things and, and done the same thing. But Dimon would look around, and every six months he'd say, you guys got to figure out how to get in on this market. And so then all the derivatives group at J.P. Morgan and the risk management people would look at it, and they'd always come back and say, no, it's too risky. We this, this, Eventually, this is going to blow up, and it's going to be really bad. And Diamond was just rare among bank CEOs that he got that. 
and and accepted it and said, "Okay, bummer." Yeah, and and they Which were meant that at parties, you know, people looked down on him. Like right, well, and they were they were not they were underperforming the rest of the banking industry yeah. for a couple of years there and getting a lot of flack from analysts on Wall Street who followed them and and elsewhere. And they were you know Diamond had come in as such a golden child that that enabled him to survive it. But when you think about a a more a less impressive leader in a less secure position, it's really hard to resist that. Yeah, and we know many of them didn't. Right. Uh, but that is, you know, the the, the question I uh, I struggle with is how much of it was um, hubris versus uh, in the back of their minds or subconsciously people counting on being bailed out as they yeah, had no, been that, in the past. Yeah, obviously after 87 and, and 98, you could reasonably come to the conclusion that, oh, you know, it might cause some trouble, but the Fed will figure out a way to keep it from being a disaster. Yeah, if everybody's dancing, um, may as well join the party. And if all of us get – we can't arrest all of us for drunkenness. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, I just I want to close with a question about behavioral issue, you know, what we call behavioral finance, behavioral economics generally. You've, you know, you've talked to a lot of the interesting players in this world. Uh, and, of course, you know, we earlier talked about – how rare it is you hear people say, I don't know. And one reason is is that if you say, I don't know a lot, you don't get a lot of airtime. You don't get a lot of publications. You don't get on TV. Um, and I wonder whether people's passion for these behavioral theories, uh, which are intellectually interesting, some of it is is product differentiation, obviously. But I want to give you the, the George Mason view as articulated by Arnold Kling uh, – uh, frequent guest here. He says, uh, at the University of Chicago, people say markets work well, so you should use the market. At MIT and other bastions of mainstream economics, they say markets fail, use government. And at George Mason, we say markets fail, use markets. <laughs> and that you know, underlying that argument is the view that, yeah, people are imperfect. Sometimes markets mess up. Maybe there are bubbles even. But politicians and bureaucrats suffer from the same behavioral challenges that we do, and I'd rather have power decentralized and centralized. What do you think of that argument? What do you think um, the proponents of the behavioral paradigm would say to that? Well, I mean, and to a large extent, a lot of the proponents of the behavioral paradigm don't even deal with these questions about the market as a whole. They're really talking and learning interesting things about individual behavior. But, yeah, I I would... That that's a, an argument that others have made. I've read David Brooks making it in the New York Times that okay, markets are irrational, but so are the bureaucrats. So it's not like they're going to be any better. I guess the only thing I'd say is that even back in a day in the in the 19th century, when there were there was vastly less government involvement in in the economy, and for most of the century there was no central bank, we still had these bubbles and and really harsh busts. Some some of which were comparable, not never in length, but definitely in severity to the Great Depression. And so my thought is the reason we developed these government responses, in part because people deemed the way it worked before to be unacceptable. And we've definitely had fewer of these really nasty little depressions that used to have all the time in the 19th century in the 20th century. We just had a really big one in the 30s, and we were having, well, and now we're in the 21st century. And and so I, I'm torn on it, because I, I do think when you sort of watch what government has done 
in fighting the crisis over the past year. It's very sloppy and all, but you, you can sort of see how it has averted the creation of this just self-reinforcing downward cycle, the whole Keynesian paradox of thrift. And I, I'm, I'm just really torn, because at one level I agree with Arnold, that, that, and I, I'm a faithful reader of his, and, I, and I, at one level I, I sympathize, and I think, you know, he may be right. But on the other level, it, it, it's been scary the last couple of years, and I, I prefer the, where, where we've landed right now to where we would have been if we'd followed the policies of the early 30s or of 1893 or of, I, I forget exactly when that 1870s crash Yeah, was. we had a bad one in 1894, was, um, but it was short, as you say. Right. Right, the Great Depression, it's so interesting to me that we're still debating it. You know, some people say it lasted 10 years, some say it lasted 15, some think the policies shortened it, some think it lengthened it. We really, right. it's a very tough very tough historical um, question that I don't think we're very good at answering whether we're getting better at this or worse. It's um, I just worry about power and no, it's hundreds true. of billions and, of dollars. And clearly, by convincing ourselves that we had had achieved this great moderation in the economy, that yeah. turned out to be a very dangerous thing. Yeah, that was a good lesson to learn. We'll learn it for at least 10, 20 years, and maybe exactly. we'll get it probably. <laughs> uh, what a in closing, what, what do you think? Where do you think finance is headed? The, re- the academic side. Where do you think the smart and creative people will be? What do you think the questions that? What are they asking now? What will they be asking in the coming years? I, I feel like parts of finance are in this sort of dead end, and I, I just don't know where finance is going because my experience, and I, and I had this most strongly visiting the. Fuqua School at, at Duke a couple years ago and being introduced, just taken down the hall and introduced to all the finance faculty members and sort of telling them all, oh, I'm working on this book on the rise and fall of the efficient market hypothesis. And half of them were behavioral finance types who all said, what a great idea. And the other half just said, what, what fall of the efficient market hypothesis? <laughs> and, it, and it just seems like, and so these behavioral guys are mostly just doing all this interesting stuff about individual behavior, entrepreneurial finance, areas where people know it's not purely just that efficient markets doesn't get you very far. And then the other side is these people who don't actually believe markets are perfectly rational or anything, but just think that that sort of efficient market starting point and and finding, demonstrating that hedge funds, when you adjust properly for risk, don't do as well as people think they do, is going in that other direction. And I... Clearly, there will be a shift and a change, but I, I don't. I don't sense finance in general dealing with this crisis in, to the extent that the economics profession is is starting to try to do. Yeah, we'll see. I, I think the, the for me, the whole idea of risk measurement and risk management is um, is in turmoil, and I think right. they're going to have to come to grips with that and can't won't be able to teach it the same way they have, somewhat akin to. Macroeconomic stability, maybe. I don't know. Right. I know it's going to be... Uh, I guess I, I would agree with that. I just don't. And, and I, I, I will say I haven't spent a lot of time in the last two years hanging out with finance professors because I'd sort of mostly written this book by then. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I guess what I, I, I have not identified any obvious new direction where it's going. Yeah. Well, it... It may not have anywhere else where to go. It, it may be we've figured out what we're going to figure out, and the the rest is going to be left. Uh, and it's hard to admit it, right? For yep. most, most, especially the players in this market. I, it's an intellectual market. I think uh, 
It just could be it's not a soluble problem. <laughs> well, yeah, because there's this great moment late in the book where I, I call Fom after yet another one of his papers ratcheting down the efficient market idea, and, and this was a few years after he had argued that if you took it away, what you know, what would you say about the cost of capital? And so I said, so you know, Gene, what what would you say about the cost? You know, what what can you say about the cost of capital now? And he laughed and said, that's why I don't teach corporate finance anymore. Yeah. But having said that, you know, that mentioning that, which is important, we haven't talked about it. The financial system is really. It's a middleman between people who have more than they're willing – that they want to consume right now and those who would like to consume more than they have, right? Right. And it's an important underpinning of our prosperity. And if we have smaller capital markets that are less transparent, uh, we're not going to – I suspect we won't live as well. So it's not it's not just a sideshow for making sure investment is you know fair or rational. That's part of it. People care a lot about that. I understand that. But it's much more than that, and it's easy to forget that. Yep. No, I I agree. I, I guess what it is is there's some point where it became the main show um, over the past decade, and that's probably excessive too. Yeah. Um, but you know, the role of financial innovation and bringing down the cost of capital is really a good thing, and we're I think we're going to be tempted to run in the other direction, but. I don't know. Hard to say. My guest today has been Justin Fox, author of The Myth of the Rational Market. Justin, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thanks so much for including me. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.